welcome to Thriving Room. Today, we are speaking with Stefan Emmanuel Fouché. He is a sociologist turned entrepreneur, navigating obstacles with clients with a keen eye on culture. His experiences in the United States, Caribbean, Asia, and Africa are the basis for his work, which is akin to being an ambassador for businesses. We learn about how his upbringing informed his multicultural pursuits, challenges he faced in preparing for this path, how he focuses on what he can control when meeting challenges, and how he defines what home is to him when he moves around so much. How are you doing, Hazu? How are you doing? I'm very well and excited to speak with you. Tell us a little bit about your career and what has motivated you toward it. The career in Japan is, it wasn't something I planned specifically. So always interested in Japan, started taking Japanese classes. I was not an East Asian studies concentrator when I first started. I was um, economics and then I noticed very quickly that econ is heartless and I added sociology to add that extra flavor to reconnect. Um, I wanted to work really in organizations and the hardest thing to figure out in any organization is not your capital, it's not your commodities, it's human resources, human or complicated. So that's why I focus on that. As my career progressed at Harvard and so on and I was studying in Japan, I went to Japan many years, I decided to focus between Japan and Haiti. But very early, I, I was told by my mentors, you can't be a prophet in your home country. In other words, if I were to study Haiti and move back to Haiti, I would actually be less efficient if I were to go in a different environment, learn really from that, and then return. And that's where I sort of use Haiti as a foil to understand Japan. And I focus on Japan. In Japan, being able to speak the, the language, understand the culture, a lot of my roles were really connecting and being a bridge between Japan and other players. Japan and the language and the culture is tied to each other. You can't learn the language without the culture. You can't learn the culture and operate in the country without the language. So having that nice combination, I was acting as that bridge for merger and acquisition deals, for investment, for working with foreign startups. Something simple, when Slack was entering Japan, the company I worked for at that time was the first enterprise player to board Slack. Well, am I a tech person? No. However, do I know how to use Dropbox and the rest? Yeah, why not? So I, I am technically literate. But in that context, I was the only person who was able to speak the languages necessary, understand the culture, the, the culture, and my counterpart would be American. And I was the only person placed in that company amidst not having the technical skills to be able to deal with that account. In educating yourself on Japanese culture and language, what obstacles have you faced? When it came time for me to study Japanese, I was always interested in Japan. People were like, oh, why don't you focus on Chinese instead? Learn Mandarin. Everyone is doing that. And I sat down and I looked at myself and I was like, okay, is this something I want to do really? Not really. Is this something that everyone is pushing me? Everyone is pushing me, but why? Oh, everyone is going to, everything is going to go to China. I was like, yeah, but if everyone is learning Chinese, what's the point of me learning Mandarin and so on? And they'd be focused on what I want to specifically do. I was always interested in Japan, always interested in Japanese technology, always interested in the way manufacturing of Japanese goods took over the global market. So I decided to go for that. So that's an example of it. Following into that, if we kind of follow that same thread, I studied abroad when I was in Japan. And during my time in Japan, I noticed that my Japanese level was not at the level I wanted to be. It's a funny thing when you go to Harvard, if you study abroad in Japan, when you come back on campus, you can skip into a higher level class. I did not. I did not feel comfortable. The test said I was. But as someone who learned other multiple languages, I know if I don't have the basics and strong basics, moving further is harder. So I decided to retake a class at Harvard most people would look at me and say, like, oh, what's going on with him? Is he crazy? Why would he do that? But hey, a few years later, I'm the only one out of my colleagues who has a career really pertaining to Japan. So I made that decision because of how I felt internally, not based on the decisions of what other people were thinking of me. The test showed one result, but you knew yourself. You knew the way you wanted to learn what you wanted to learn. You made a decision that was unpopular. When you, Stefan, know yourself well, 
how do you perceive opportunities in which you have a unique offering to give and make the most of those opportunities? Harvard in my freshman year is really what put me on that course. I found out very quickly that when doing freshman year that I didn't have all the resources that other students have. I didn't go to boarding school. Um, I, f- I wrote my first paper on a computer my senior year in high school. Everything was just by hand. Um, in class, teacher would be like, oh, hey, everyone, make, make sure to go on the online course website and put your paper in the Dropbox. It's like, what's that? Like these things didn't make sense. Office hours, huh? I'm confused. So I noticed that I was behind when I was at Harvard. So I decided very early that competing was just useless. It's not going to happen. So I sat down and I look at myself. These are the things that I accelerate at. I'm very good at. These are the things I am very good at, but I'm relatively behind compared to my peers because of the competition level and I can still catch up. This is the final section where I am so behind. Even if I'm good at this, I'm so behind, I would not be able to compete at the level as I want. So I just give up on that last section. Anything I was able to maintain, I would maintain. And the thing that I accelerated at, I would push to be very good at that. So the strategy was, let me try to not compete as much as possible. Let me try to be the only one. So being the only one made give me an extremely big comparative advantage. And the other thing is, if I decide to focus on classes or on a career where you can't place into, so if you can't place in, you can place into a higher level math class, but you can't place into a higher level sociology class, you need that content. So because it's content-based, everyone starts at the same level. So it's the same playing field. It's the same starting point. So the strategy was focus on things where everyone is starting at the same level. And on the other hand, whatever I have that is extremely high value, focus on making that value even higher by making that tool even sharper. I love this prompt that you're gifting us to consider our strengths and weaknesses, not to judge them, but to use them as guides in our journey in navigating our life and prepare us to spot opportunities when we can be the only one. Daikokubashira. Daikokubashira means like the central pole of a house, for example. And jiku is like that straight line inside of um, a structure and so on. The reason why I always refer to these two is that when it comes to like things that I can do, I can only control my actions. I can't really control the actions of other people. So if I enter a space, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything that is uncalled for. Then I'm allowed to do whatever is in that constraint and be who I am myself. Now, let's say someone else is uncomfortable because I'm doing something else. That's their problem, not my problem. So someone is uncomfortable with me, for example, wearing a hoodie and feel like, oh, yeah, you know, I can't see their face. I don't feel comfortable with them. It has nothing to do with who I am. So that's why I just focus on what I can do on who I am and which makes me believe that that central pole has to be on the self. So I don't look on the outside. I look internally for a lot of the things that I want to do. Speaking of what you want to do, you made a decision a couple of years ago to leave Japan. How much did you want to leave Japan? Relocating back to America or not. The hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life um, so far. Sounds like a simple decision, but I had a life in Japan. I had a career. I was at the time current dating someone else and it was very serious. And after spending five years living consecutively in Japan and having a relationship in the last 10 years with Japan, I knew more of Japan than I knew of the USA. I've never been to Disney World America whatsoever. Japan, I took your Disney Sea, I knew it like at the back of my hands. That's how many times I've been there. So my identity was heavily tied to Japan to some, inst- to, some, to some level. I had to make a decision. Do I throw away my identity in Japan and relocate back to America? Although temporary, if we think about it, but do I throw that away or do I kind of chuck away my green card and just focus on Japan? I'll have to pay less taxes and so on. I don't have to worry about that. But that also means that I lose the potential chance of being close to family. My family is based in Haiti and the States and Canada. The USA is the middle point. Was this something that I was willing to do? Was this something that was advisable? And it took a long time. There are pros and cons. If I continue in Japan and I succeed, then great. What was the point of having access to the USA? I can always fly there. But 
let's say my mother is sick and has to follow treatment in the USA and I want to be closer to my mother, then that opportunity is gone now. That opportunity is just gone. I'll have to go to the green card issue all over and then getting a second green card is hard. So this is where I was like, do I cash in now or do I have a potential opportunity in the future that will come as like being able to take care of my mother? Um, it was hard. In the end, I settled for family. I settled for family, uprooted every single thing I had and relocated. I had a time frame. I told myself that by the end of 2018, I'll be making a decision. Do I take this Japanese version of the green card, the Japanese residency card, fly to America and submit it? Or do I take my USA green card and cut it with scissors and then say no? I had to make a decision. December rolled in 2018, decision made, and then that's it. And then I still think about it, but I'm not going back. Decision is made. I'm going to maintain that and continue forward. You said that you settled for family. I am curious if one way to think about that is that you chose to celebrate your family. And we will hear more about your family in a bit. Before we do that, I understand that this hard decision was an impetus for you to introduce more nimbleness into your life so that you enable yourself to be more flexible no matter where you are. You have taught me about this mindset that is not to only respond to specific events as they come up, but to think of ourselves as preparing ourselves to receive what we do not know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You kind of spot on saw that. At that time, I thought of settling. I thought it was like, it was the lesser of two evils and what would be more constant. My life has been marred with a lot of like, uh, what is it, instability. It's been a lot of moving all around all of this. So having something to step on is very hard. And I looked at it, Japan was becoming like that actually, to the point where I've associated more with Japan than I associated with anything else. But in the greater scheme of things, I went back to the core. Friends and family mean very much to me. That's a very important core to who I am. My friends in Japan can always come and visit me and so on. If I have a client who really enjoys me, there are ways to do so. But the part that I will never be able to get back is having access to my USA family in case the need is dire, which is why I decided to come back to the USA. And on top of that, drawing back on different things, I'm not just going to come back and that's it. I know that I need to create a structure that is even more stable. And I'm like, no, no more of this green card nonsense. Let's go towards citizenship. Once I have that, they can't take it away. Unless I've done something horrible, they can't take it away. Now I no longer have to deal with this potential issue of green card again in the future. So take care of that problem. That allows me to live anywhere in the world. I need to do something. I can just fly to take care of my family when I need to. One of my mentors um, always tells me the following, and it's interesting. It's, um, if you want to make God laugh, um, just share with him your plans. Nothing will go as planned. It's a constant recalibration. Nothing will go as planned. So, and this goes back to the whole idea of Jiku and focusing on the central pole. I can't focus on outside things. I can only focus on myself. That's the only thing I have a relative amount of control. So focus on myself, knowing what the skills that I have and being able to adapt as much as possible. So instead of making myself respond to a specific situation, I would work on myself to have all the tools necessary internally. So when whatever situation happens, I can respond to that. So being extremely nimble and flexible was the thing I optimized the most. So when challenges happen, I would focus on trying to solve the issue. And if not, I would retrieve and go into my council. I have a couple of friends and mentors that I just refer to as the council, talk to them and recalibrate. So focus, time. If I'm focusing on a problem for two months, focus on two months. If after two months, that's the given time frame I've given myself to try, I was not able to succeed, give up, try something else or give up, go back to the drawing board and retry a different strategy. I don't go and push on a project beyond the time frame that I've given myself to solve it. Just like the saying says, you don't gotta be ready if you're always ready. 
And to take into the next step is I am not a retroactive person. I tend to be a bit more proactive. Before the issue arises, I try to solve for it. Positives and negatives. There's always positives and negatives to everything. But let's take the COVID situation. I had to relocate from Japan to America because I'm a green card holder. And to apply for citizenship, I had to uproot my life to the USA to apply for citizenship. That was a shocker. It destroyed a lot of the plans that I had in Japan, things I was aspiring. So that based on that experience, I was like, okay, this time it was citizenship. Let's see if I can structure my life where if there's anything that causes me to move from my base to a different area, let me create a structure that is very responsive to that. Simple things. I have a shipping address that is virtual. Not a PO box, it's a street address, it's virtual. I put all of my static items to that virtual address. Why? That virtual address will not move, but I might be able to move. Okay, let me make sure that I have dual bank accounts for all these things. So I structured that. And guess what? COVID happened. COVID happening till now, there is barely any change in the way I was acting or the way I structured my businesses or the way I move around. It's because COVID just happens to fit the hypothesis of a event that changes the way I work or causes me to move from point A to point B without me having pushed to do so. So I did a proactive solution that just happened to be a solution that fit COVID. Was I aiming for COVID? No, I was aiming for an even bigger overarching issue. And I structured myself and my surrounding to be able to answer these these issues if they do come in. Where does this adaptability and openness to new experiences come from? I have to credit my mother for this. Um, My mom comes from a large family, multiple brothers and sisters. What they did is they took all the kids and they sectioned us by generation. So you have the older generation. I'm part of the baby squad. So anyone who was born between 1988 to 1992, 94, you're part of this baby squad. And what they did is every single summer, they would take that baby squad and ship that baby squad to a different aunt and uncle. So when you're a child, your world is mom and dad. As you get older, you slowly include your brother, sister, and the rest. So very early, I was being kind of thrown into different situations. My household would do certain things one way, and then I would spend the weekends at my cousin's house. They would do the same thing that we do, but a different way. So it's as if I was traveling to a different country. Now, do this with like eight, nine, ten different aunt and uncles. So before I even left Haiti, I've already went to 10 different countries, for lack of better words, because at a very young age, every single place is a different ecosystem. So being able to smoothly enter and leave an ecosystem was a skill that I developed very quickly by sheer exposure to so many different ways of living just among my family. Now you take that, you send me to America at the age of 12, that's not that hard. It's kind of like an easy transition. Now to go to college, it just gets easier. So over time that those transitions get easier. So if you send me, let's say tomorrow to a country I've never been to, well, guess what? I've been to 20 countries before that I've never been. So it's, I'm used to it now. It doesn't phase me anymore. What is an example of a different country you experienced by visiting a different family member? When I was growing up, um, peanut butter sandwiches is a big thing in Haiti. No jelly, just peanut butter. Um, Haiti is a big peanut butter country. So we say Pemaba in Haitian Creole. So if you have any Haitian friends, Pemaba, they'll laugh. My house, you take the bread, you don't put it together, you take the slices, separate, cut the top of the bread. I don't like the crust at the top. The rest is fine. You put the peanut butter on both sides and then I eat. It's less of a peanut butter sandwich. It's more like peanut butter plus bread because <laughs> there's so much peanut butter. That's how I was in my household. I would go to my cousin. This is the cousin I'm the closest to and his house took the meaning of peanut butter sandwich literally where his father would toast two pieces of bread. One piece of bread would have peanut butter. The other piece of toast bread would have butter. And then they would slap it together to give you a peanut butter sandwich. And at first I was like, oh, what is such a barbarian way of dealing with these things? And then my cousin's like, oh, he doesn't understand the goodness of doing that. So it's like, it's the same thing. We're the same family. We're just cousins but different methods of operating thing. And once you see this when you're young, six, seven, it's like a revelation of a whole new world that never existed and you're just finding about it now. New revelations are so delicious. What might people often 
misunderstand about Haiti? The current situation in Haiti is heavily due to the USA. Um, Haiti has a cholera epidemic and the rest. It did not start in Haiti. It was imported into the country because the UN, nonsense. But if you look at it, you notice that a lot of foreign intervention has caused Haiti to be the way it is. Is there some sort of agency in the U on the Haiti side? Yes, there is. But come on, in all seriousness, the US comes in, takes our president, um, puts him in a helicopter, puts him on the plane and sent him to South Africa. That was when I was living in Haiti and because of that, the country went to civil war. So the US does have a big say in what's going on in the country because of influence of the USA in the markets and so on. However, in terms of Haiti itself, a lot of people don't quite understand the image of Haiti and it's because it's been marred by so many negative things. Um, Jason Derulo, did you know he was Haitian? I did not know that. His last name is not Derulo. His last name is Derulo. So it's actually a French last name, but Derulo is hard to pronounce. So he becomes Derulo. Taking a different story and bring it back. Let's think of Shakira. Do you know what's Shakira's actual hair color? Is she a brunette? No, nah, it's black. Oh. But for the American market, you have blonde. So if we think of like Mel and Marie, all these people, you kind of see a trend. So what I'm trying to say is Haiti has beautiful things to offer, but for some reason, I don't know how or how the media does it, those things never make it into a positive light. It's always the negative items that you tend to see that get brought up. So there is a heavy misconception. People think of Haiti, they think of voodoo. I'm like, okay, oh, get out that voodoo. It's so negative. But every single country has their traditional folklore. Cuba has Santera, you have like the like you have like all these like witches in Japan and so on but why is Haiti specifically being put in this negative limelight it's because the narrative is meant to be negative and the narrative is not controlled by Haiti this is where power comes in Haiti can't control what Fox CNN Red Cross is but Japan has the ability to control their own narrative the USA do so what I would say to a lot of people is look beyond those flashy um, catch lines that you see on TV or on the news. If you're really interested, dig a little bit further than that. And you will notice that there's a lot more influence, Haitian influence in American media. Disney, if you watch Cars, when in one of the shows, one of the background music is called Bouge. Um, and it's from Jay Perry. Bouge means move. It's a Zumba song and it's a Haitian artist. And guess what? Disney has Haitian Creole being played in the back. But the majority of people just don't notice because, well, that's not something that America thought was important. I am glad I got educated on this before I go watch Cars. <laughs> if you're a gamer, Cyberpunk, there's like a whole Haiti section to it too. Ooh, okay. Have you been playing Cyberpunk? My brother is a big fan. My cousin is a big fan. They already both finished it. They're trying to get me into it, but I'm trying to avoid by all means. I have too much, just too many distractions already. And let me not add more to the pile of the of distraction I've already built for myself. Now that we have gotten to know a little bit about people who are important to you, I would love to understand more about how you nurture your relationships. What is one habit you have in the way you interact with people that you feel is very you? I was the kid that if I see someone burning their hands on the stove, that would not deter me from going and putting my hand on the stove. I would be like, I want to try it myself. And I'm like, oh crap, that hurts. And I would learn. I just learned by interaction. Over time, it developed to, let's say I'm meeting someone. I've heard hearsay whatsoever from other people, um, but I'm not going to judge that person until I have an interaction with that person. I don't know that person. That person has done nothing to me. I have no reasons to dislike that person if there is no like second or third degree, whatever interaction with them, with that individual. So this is how I sort of um, build this idea. I'd rather get hurt than lose the potential of having a great friend. So I always come with the idea of like, I, of, I always come with, with trust first. So I don't need, people say trust is earned. No, in my situation, trust is given and over time, if you can't maintain that or you do something to me, it decreases over time. And that's how I ended up, ended up building the way I see the world. Traveling now, your friends become your family. You, your friends become some of your closest, your closest people in the world and they become sometimes closer than family. And I've been in places where I was the only one out of my family. Living in Japan for five years, 
my host family became my de facto family. So that's why I make sure to stay very close to them. I joke around with friends also. I'm like, I have great friends. I have great family. I don't need new people in my life. Um, I see this in a facetious way. It's just like the barrier for me to include someone in the friend and family to give them that label is extremely high. Doesn't mean I don't have acquaintances. Doesn't mean I won't interact with anyone new, but the label that I place on, as someone who is a friend and family is extremely high to achieve. And I make sure to maintain a tight, very close knit community with these people because they are, they are, they are, they are the people who describe who I am, who define who I am in a way. Some other people do not give trust away. They think trust is earned. What frictions have you seen with your approach? In the work environment, uh, I have to prove myself um, to even be allowed to sit in the room. Um, so these are sort of environments. I work on this, but I am extremely petty. I am extremely petty. So when someone doesn't trust me at first or someone doesn't like um, give me at least the benefit of the doubt, I think that's the best word, the benefit of the doubt. I have done nothing wrong. Why am I already being marginalized or penalized for doing nothing? In this situation, I also get a bit vengeful and hold a grudge. Uh, so the pettiness comes out uh, and I just dissociate. At first, I would try to prove the person wrong. But now I'm like, no, there's, there's by, the, by default, there's an animosity and there's a toxicity. Uh, at work, they'd be like, well, you know, they don't know you. And you, that's why they're kind of like putting their guards up and the rest. My response is, they don't know me. So why is there so much prejudice? They don't know me. Why is there a wall in the first place? I understand that we can sort of meet, shake hands. And if they dislike the way I shake my hand, start building a wall, I understand it. But just like for some people, it's a given to build this wall. For me, it's a given to deal without a wall in the beginning, unless there is something that takes place. So now my solution is if I see that, dissociate. That sounds like it can hurt, but you would rather get hurt than lose a chance to get to know someone. What is one of these times when you burnt your hand on the stove? When I was a manager in Japan, you have to hire individuals. Uh, you have to hire individuals. You have to work with people you don't know. You have to work with certain partners. So in this situation, I some people would kind of like cast off the potential of new partners. But if you're a manager and your goal is to expand current partnerships, you need to look for new people. You have to. You ha that's by default. So some people in Japan, it's very risk averse. So they would look at what are the competitors doing and who are the competitors talking to? Now combining two things together, don't compete be the only one. Why would I try to snoop in and take another partner when I can go ahead and zoom in on something new? So I have to do the search and I have to find these people. Just like any early angel investor, you, can, you only know what the startup people are telling you. You're taking a gamble in the end. You have to take that gamble. I'd rather take that gamble, put the money, and know that I made a bad investment and learn from that and move forward, then from the beginning, not even at least entertain a meeting with that organizational partner and lose the opportunity to even have that person in my network. I don't need to invest, but I will always make sure to have that first initial meeting to at least hear what the person has to say. Sometimes, again, works to my advantage, works to my, to my disadvantage, but I would rather do that. And in terms of the ways I've been burnt, very simple, reputation risk. You believe someone, you trust them, you invest all of your time into it, and that person is the same person who backstabs you. I've been in many times in that situation, but my philosophy is money you can always make, opportunity you can always, you, you can always create. So, so that's why I always try to structure in a way where I don't lose any opportunities by just shutting my eyes away from them due to fear. I've been chatting with one of our listeners who is fascinated by fear and interested in how we can make decisions in a way such that fear is not the primary driver. Fear is complicated because it's a motivator for some and it's an inhibitor for the others. I don't, I always try to factor it out. The thing that annoys me the most is um, inactivity. Do you do it or do you not? I need that clarity. 
not answering a fear of making people angry or whatsoever. It's just something that's not allowed. Personally, it's not something that's allowed in my book. You need to have some sort of agency and make a decision. Even if you're not making a decision, be like, give me some time. But it goes back to another idea. In a specific time frame, I'm going to make a decision. Once the clock is over, a decision has to be made and I will make it. I will not let fear of angering someone, fear of um, not being able to deliver. I'm not going to let that fear control. Um, my mom thinks I'm a bit too, I'm too aggressive in the sense that she feels like I chased fear. She's a bit right because fear just means excitement. That's how I look at it. You don't know what's going to happen and that's where the opportunity lies. That's where the opportunity of new friendships. That's where the opportunity of learning something new. That's where the opportunity of making great friends lie. But if I let my fear of a bad relationship give someone new a chance, then that's where fear is trapping me and not pushing me forward. You are so principled in your timely decision-making. How do you maintain principles that matter to you? I would say, no, don't lose yourself. When I was in Japan, yes, being a foreigner in Japan, being a male, again, there, there are specific things that I have that are privileges. I was able to enter certain spaces and so on. And of course, having a uh, Ivy League as a background and so on, again, they, it allows me to enter certain spaces. But I tell people very clearly that this is the line. If, if there's a book that has 100 pages, oh, 99 pages will always change to fit whatever the context is. That final last page, I will not change it. So I tell people I'm okay with most things, but I will tell you very specifically the things I'm not okay with. Um, and this might be the stubbornness in me, but these things that I'm not okay with are not up for discussion. They're not going to change. There's not many of them, which means that if you violate one of the few things that I'm asking you not to violate, that person is automatically terminated in my eyes. Because um, it's not that much. It's a simple amount of things, but that's the only thing that I maintain as my jiku, again, that central pole that I maintain. And if you do that, it's to some extent, it's an attack um, that may be seen. I'm like, I'm not going to change that. Like there's some things I'm not going to do. I'm sorry. Oh, you should not talk to this person because rumors says blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that person has done nothing to me. If they want to have a conversation, I will listen to what they have to say. doesn't mean I will do, but no, you should not even try to listen to them. I'm like, no, my answer is final. It's not up for a negotiation. I'm not going to entertain any thoughts because that is just a core value that I maintain with myself since I was young. It's based on my values. It's based on my upbringing in America. It's based on the way my parents raised me. It's based on the influence that I have working in China and working in Japan. It becomes who I am. It's the mosaic of who is Stefan. And if you try to change that, you're trying to change who Stefan is and I'm sorry, you can't change the font unless the font changes to change himself. Tell me more. What is on your list of what not to do? Let me take notes so I don't violate anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not big things. Um, I will always listen. I will always entertain any conversation. But if I ask for time, please give me the time. So what I mean by that is, let's say someone is, is trying to push a sale. Let me just move it to the business of work. Someone is trying to push a sell at me. If I say, great, give me some time. And then the sell continues, you're overselling. I ask you, give me some time, stop. Let's bring it back to a relationship. And if they say, no, I don't agree with this. Why aren't you doing this? I'm like, well, clearly we have different thoughts about this. And then of course it will be a heated relationship with a significant other. It's like, yeah, why, don't, why can't you agree with me on this? And if I say, give me some time to digest, that means that I'm trying to work through all of this conversation, all of this information and the rest. A lot of my, a lot of people in my, who are my close interested, it's a bad habit, but they kind of grew to it. I just go into a small little cocoon, which means I kind of isolate myself from every single thing. You might not hear from me for a week or two. It's because I'm digesting the information. It looks, I look very decisive in most things. But that's because I've already kind of walked through the process. But if it's something I've never thought of, I need that time. And if you don't give me that time, you're pressuring me beyond my deadline, my structure and the rest, then that person is kind of like, again, infringing in one of those things that I make. If I'm gonna make a decision, I don't tend to make rash decisions unless I've thought it through. So I know I wanna do it, excitement is telling me, but a core structure says sleep on it, wake up tomorrow and do it tomorrow instead. So that's how I just operate and not going to change anytime soon. 
many of us need help setting boundaries. That is a very popular topic of conversation these days. Your point is liberating because it means that we are allowed to set boundaries and choose how we operate as long as we communicate all of this kindly with the people with whom we are engaging. Again, you said it right. And I also think it's expect expectations and how people relate to things. A curveball. Everyone's jealous. You could be jealous of what someone else is doing. The way I look at jealousy is that, huh, why do I feel jealous about something? This is something that's unexplainable. I don't know why. Hmm. Clearly, there is something about whatever situation that attracts me to it, making me jealous. So I don't see jealous as a negative marker. I see jealous as like a desire I had. I just never knew I had. So if I am jealous of a friend who has a new car, I'm not going to try to sabotage him. I'm not going to try that, but I will nurture that jealousy because that tells me, huh, there is some sort of thing associated with that. Is it the car? Is it the sign of success? Is it the flashy thing? Is it that he, that person managed to make it further than I did and I perceived that I was better than that? What is it? There is something there. So I try to dive into that situation and figure out what I can draw from it. So feelings of fear and jealousy, not only fear and jealousy, when these happen, I ponder and figure out what is the reason behind them. This is my body and emotions telling me something that I didn't think about. This is something I did not think about, but clearly is bothering me, which means clearly there's an individual response to it. So then what is it? So that's what I do. And I try to create those boundaries. But the thing with bound now, crying towards boundaries, I have my boundaries. Mine tends to be a bit bigger, but someone else's boundaries could be smaller. Uh, mine tends to be, have a big circumference, which is nice. I can fit a lot of things. But if someone's boundaries is, is smaller, I just have to adapt to that. Or I just section that friendship or relationship to fit the needs of that perfect individual. I'm not going to force you to expand beyond. But I will not accept you trying to make me close my boundaries. I will respect yours, but there's no way you're going to push me to make mine even smaller. A personal rule of mine is any person I dated are friends. I start from friendship and then it becomes into a relationship. Let's say we were in a relationship, it doesn't work. I strive to go back to the friendship. That's just my personal thing. Why? Because I was a friend to that person. That person was a friend to me before we became a relationship. Now, let's say I'm dating someone new and she's like, I don't want you to talk to your past girlfriends and so on. I'm like, bye-bye, mm -mm, that ain't gonna happen. Um, that ain't gonna happen. These people were markers in my life. There are people who affected me positively and negatively in that time. We probably had fights, hated each other, said mean things to each other, but if we're back to each other, we're here. I'm not gonna go and revise my Facebook and delete past pictures. I'm not gonna go and do that. That unlike clutter, I was conscious when I quit it. I made a conscious decision. It wasn't something that took easy. No way am I going to delete something that describes who I am. No way am I going to delete anything that describes who I am. What a wonderful quote. I want to see that on a plaque. Now you've opened up this question of how do you, though, take a romantic relationship that did not work and bring it back to a friendship? Boundaries. If I'm, I have a bigger circle when it fits, but the person's circle is smaller where they don't want to deal with their past significant others, then I'm forced to abide to the smaller circle. That person doesn't want to. Um, that's my wish, but again, I'm not going to force that person to expand their circle. If they're willing to listen to me and hear me out, um, and hear what I actually no, hear me out and hear is very different. Hear me out is just being there, listening to what I have to say to let me vent. Hear what I have to say is actually listening to what I'm saying, digesting it, and making a decision based on that. Um, my idea is even if we don't agree, can you hear me at least? And if you can and we still don't agree, it's fine. But if you're just posing and here listening to me just to make me feel better, that actually makes me feel even worse and creates more friction. Um, but with past, it's out of most of my relationships, I think I, I kept in contact with every single one of them, except for two. Um, and these two, they just did not want to. Um, they just did not want to. They just did not want to entertain it. They just did not feel comfortable with it. Sometimes time is great. Um, the total used to be three, now it's two. Um, why three? There's one person, it's been two, three years, we didn't have in contact with each other. We started contacting each other again before we knew it. We become best friends because once you reach a certain level of intimacy with someone, they know you. 
So they know the way you think. So if I'm facing any new problems, that person can hear me out a lot more and hear me. And I can do the same to that person. So you become this awkward category where you are good friends that could be a close mentor to each other. Great. And what was this about how you're very careful with your online presence? This is going to make me sound very obnoxious. Every December, what I do, uh, I go to Starbucks. I didn't do it last year because, well, COVID. I go to Starbucks, I get myself a big grande matcha tea latte, and I look at Facebook and I literally delete the people I don't talk to. I call it virtual baggage. There's some people we don't talk to. Like our phones is like a, what is it? It's like a cemetery of all the people that we don't talk to anymore, for lack of better words. I try to get rid of all of that virtual and physical baggage and refocus my energy on the things that I can. Sometimes a friend was a friend of that moment, but it's not a lifetime friend. We have to realize that. I want to reach out, but that person probably does not want to reach out. Understanding that is very important. And that's what I do. So I make my core as strong and as small and concise as possible. And that's why it's very easy for me to catch up with friends. Luckily, I have a lot of people in my environment where I would see them and we wouldn't see each other for two, three years. But then when we meet each other again, we pick up as if we just, it was as if we saw each other yesterday. A lot of my friends are pre-filtered for that. Doesn't mean that it just happens. No, it's actually a lot of the people who are close to me are pre-filtered for having these conditions. And that's what allows me to maintain these relationships with people, although sometimes I might not see them for two or three years, and we might not see each other physically for even longer. I'm happy that I have passed your grooming so far. This year, perhaps I was saved by the bell because you did not go to Starbucks during COVID. You're in the priority list, so no worries. You ain't going to get cut anytime soon. The people with the name friends and family, again, special crew. You mentioned earlier the idea that change can feel like you are throwing away parts of your identity. How does having the special crew help you grapple with the feeling that you might be discarding parts of your identity in moments of change? It's a dual structure and there's a slight connective dissonance, but that dissonance allows me to operate and not deal with an identity crisis. Sadly, I don't have a home like somewhere to kind of physically go back to. So my home is based at the people who surround me. So in Japan, in Tokyo, Komatsu and Fukuoka, these three cities, I have a home. I don't have a physical home, which means that when I travel, I don't buy gifts. Um, I don't buy souvenirs, for example. Why? Where am I going to put it? And that sounds very simple, but people who can like easily kind of go back to their house where their mom and dad are living, where there was that one house that was constant, that's a luxury. Something simple, my diploma is still packed away. It's not hanging in an office or in a room somewhere violently being shown because I just don't have that. I move so much that every time I move, I feel like I have to lose a portion of myself because these are the things that I cared about and I lose. So I try to be as light as possible. Now, when I move though, the friendships and every single thing, I try to carry them with me as much as possible. So that's how I maintain this sanity that takes place. And the final one is I'm very fluid in my ability to move one place to the other. That is something that I just grew with and things become part of my identity. So, and I'm extremely judgy. And what I mean by judgy, I'm not saying like judgmental person and so on, but I scored things very highly. So in Japan, I believe that the way that Japan structures and does operation is way better than America. However, the way America does innovation is way better. Um, communication, a lot of um, African and Asian countries that I've done work is very roundabout. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not roundabout. When it comes to communication, I have a USA education. It is conflict heavy, but you resolve things very quickly and move forward very quickly. So I prefer that. So my method of doing work is a hodgepodge of things. So the joke I tell people is that my citizenship is Canada and Haiti. My, what is it? My values are very Haitian in the way they are. My method of work is slightly Japanese in that sense, but my, th my method of thinking, pure American, not even pure American, pure East Coast New York. No more BS. It's very, huh? no, uh, uh, very like 
aggressive, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So I, so I tone it down in most places. Look at how you have summed yourself up. It has been a joy to learn that home for you is your loved ones and to learn about how you have cherished human connection, which has influenced your work, your decisions, and your sense of who you are. When we get old and crusty and slow, that's what keeps us running. <laughs> I was talking to a senior citizen who was living in assisted housing and their joy of what they're saying, like hanging out with their friends, chatting and doing all these things. It's great. The longer they live, the more they get to cherish it. However, the longer they live, the more they get to see their friends die. So they carry on those wonderful memories and they get to at least have a lot more of those wonderful memories, but it's also marred by the pain of losing their friends. But the longer they live, the more they see. So the older we get, great successes and all these things are important. Financial stability is important, but you reach a certain level where they mean very little if you have no one to share it with. They mean very little if you have no one to really kind of reminisce on all these things. So for me, that also was part of the conversation. Do I want the legacy of my mother and I to be spoiled by the fact that when my mother was having, let's say, medical issues and the rest, I wasn't in country to be next to her? No, no. And when that came in, I think that was something that made the decision a lot easier to take. And I knew what I was losing. And it's something simple, but I kind of looked further into the future. Is, this, is the thought of this regret greater than the opportunities I have? The thought of just that regret is heavier than the opportunities I'm losing. So I went with it. There are so many ways to frame the way that we behave in life. We can think of a long life as a combination of this is time I have to chase successes. This is time I have to engage with loved ones, which, yes, absolutely includes the pain of losing some of these people. You blew my mind when you reframed fear as excitement and jealousy as a marker of desire. It is powerful how our brains interpret what happens. I would love for you to sign off with a thank you to someone who has helped to shape your worldview. The person right now, uh, there are two, not one. There are, many, there are many people who deserve this honor. The two who came up right now is when I, and this, this is current, again, different stages of my life had different people, but as of right now, this current stage, when I left the USA to go to Japan, um, the first time I went, when I studied abroad, I stayed in a homestay. My host mom introduced me to her good friend who was also doing homestays. I became very close to these two um, moms and then they became my host mothers, for lack of better words. One, I stayed at her house for two months. The other one, every time I would visit Japan, I would go to her house. Those two were my initial pillars in Japan. My mother and I have a great relationship, but very early when I was 12, I left Haiti and it was very remote. So between 12 to, between the age of 12 to now 28, I can, I, if I combine all the days that I spent with my mother, like physically in the same space, I don't think it amounts to a year. It's from the age of 12. I don't think it amounts to a year. The amount of time we spend on the phone, talking, all these things, very different. But the amount of time we spend the same physical space is very different. Those two, when I, were in, when I was in Japan, were always there for my birthday. Were always there when I would go back for New Year's. Were always there when Japan has like um, Obon, which is like the celebration of the, of the dead. It's like the Dia de los Muertos and things. It's like the equivalent. It's in August. I would always see them. They were heavy pillars in my life. And they treated me as if I was their own child to the point where their, my picture was on their wall, like the family wall. Um, when I would go home, it's like I was part of that family. So because of that, I had that very heavy center in Japan that sadly I don't even get when I'm back in Haiti in the States. It's just awkward because Spending so much time away from a country, what you knew is no longer there. Time, time in a location doesn't wait for you. It just flows. 
But over the last 10 years, time with them, I flew with the time with them. Where that house, where I was to go back, their houses were my pillars. Their houses were constant. When I would stay at their house, I would always sleep in the same room and everything. So for instability, having that consistency was there. And I credit them for me being where I am today because they gave me this freedom of mind to stand on something and think forward. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm excited for your crew to continue to nourish you as you continue to show the world who you are. That's the only skill I have. Everything around me is going to change. The slightly constant thing is going to be this dude, which is myself, but we grow and we change. So being comfortable with oneself is important. And I, I was blessed with mentors, um, members, families, friends who came at the right moment when I was doubting myself and they came into my life and helped me flip that switch and see something I didn't get to see. So I was lucky. Luck is important. Do not uh, <laughs> disvalue luck. Being in the right place at the right moment is extremely important. And then one last thing, the movie, there's a movie called Joy. I'm not sure if you ever heard of it. And Rotten Tomatoes, it has like 60%, Metacredit 56, IMDb, it's like 6.6. .6. It has like all these horrible scores. I liked it. I liked it. And the reason why I liked it is it's a story of a woman and a woman entrepreneur who built a dynasty and she had to face betrayal where like her family betrayed her. But there's a funny line where she mentioned that, and this is her ex-husband in the, in the movie, her ex-husband and her have kids. They co-parented their kids together. They still raise their kid. And the ex-husband was still involved in the business dynasty that she built. And she said herself that we weren't good together as husband and wife, but we made a great team together raising our kids and running a business. So it's interesting because she felt betrayal in almost every sense, but if you think of divorce, for example, that separation as a betrayal and the rest, she's like, nah, it's just that for that moment, we found out that we were no longer good for each other at that moment and that specific sense, but later on it did. So I, that movie, I think, solidified my mindset when it comes to relationship, opportunities, whatever you want. If I fight with someone, we might be angry at each other for two years, but listen, fights have an expiration date. Grudges have an expiration date. So always go back and do that. So that's why if you have some time, just give a quick look at the movie Joy and tell me what you think. What Stefan said about jealousy is a reminder for me that when I have this feeling, I have the ability to question why I am having this feeling and to take this as an opportunity to learn about myself, my values, and my dreams. I'm grateful that he was vulnerable with us about hard decisions in his life and how he made those decisions in the face of trade-offs he had to make and people who disagreed with him. If you would like help digesting his story further, please feel free to check out our newsletter at thrivingroom.substack.com, where we will have a few thought-provoking questions for you to consider. And feel free to get in touch if you have any thoughts you would like to chat about. Now remember, if you want to sell anything to Stefan, number one, make him a peanut butter sandwich the way he likes it. Number two, watch the movie Joy and tell him what you think. And number three, if he asks for more time to consider, give him the time. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.